Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is Ellen Chesler, and after a long career in academia, government, and philanthropy, I am currently a research fellow. During the past few years, I have welcomed a number of women to this podcast, uh, inspiring leaders from the United Nations and from prominent non-governmental organizations, uh, as well as distinguished academics who are writing about the growing importance of considerations of gender in foreign affairs and global development. Equality between the sexes has long been recognized as a fundamental moral and legal objective of the UN, and more recently of many governments and international financial and development institutions. Equal rights for women were inscribed in the UN Charter in 1945 in its Foundational Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and in a standalone convention, the visionary convention to eliminate all forms of discrimination against women adopted years later in 1980. Women's empowerment has long been recognized as essential to the larger development objectives of the UN and the international community. Improving women's status is not just the right thing to do as Hillary Clinton likes to say, but also the smart and essential thing to do if we hope to create peace, prosperity, and a sustainable future for all. Families, communities, countries, and regions just do better when women are educated, formally employed, legally secure, and politically well represented. Extensive empirical data from all over the world today informs and supports this thesis. Ordinary women are organizing to secure and advance their rights in every corner of the world today, and yet a tiny fraction of public and private resources are available um, to support this work from the economic development area, public health, human rights, and human security um, pieces of the foreign uh, assistance 
pots of money. Despite all the evidence of the disproportionate impact and payoff uh, from giving grassroots women more money, um, we're still not doing it adequately. Talk about this dilemma and why we need to do so much better. We are fortunate to have a veteran of many years of work advancing women's rights, spanning 15 different countries. Latanya Matt Prep, who is currently president of the Global Fund for Women and author of a compelling new book, The Everyday Feminist, The Key to Sustainable Social Impact, Driving Movements We Need Now More Than Ever, which was recently published by John Wiley and Sons. The Global Fund offers flexible feminist funding to help create meaningful, sustainable change. Since its founding, this San Francisco-based group has supported over 5,000 grassroots organizations in 175 countries. Trained as a lawyer, Latanya also teaches today at Mailman School of Public Health. Her distinguished career has also included senior positions in Africa with USAID and UNICEF and an executive position with Planned Parenthood's global program, which is where we met. Welcome, Latanya. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, let me begin by asking you to give us an overview of the book and what motivated you to write it. Beyond its compelling argument and supporting data, please pick out a few of the many captivating women you profile in the narrative and tell us their stories. Sure. I mean, thanks, Ellen, for um, doing this podcast with me. It's, it's always a pleasure to be in company with you again. And the book really is about how grassroots feminists are driving social change and what we can all do to support them. In the book, I try to invite readers to explore not only the monumental impact of the everyday feminists, but the opportunities to champion and, and support them in their drive to, to usher in what for me in the 30 years of my career has been the most profound social impact we've seen in modern history. I mean, we can't do this without them. We can't pass the laws, we can't get the resources, we can't change minds and hearts, which is where we all know change begins. And so everyday feminists represent their communities in these struggles for justice, equality, transformational social change, and they're using their voice and other personal resources to get this done. And so I talk about them as relatable and perfectly imperfect in a way that makes them human. They're, they're not the, the once in a generation like lightning in a bottle charismatic leader. That's not who we're talking about. Rather, it's these ordinary women with extraordinary passion that are committed to this work and trying to not just see, um, you know, sort of surface change, but really systemic large change happen. And they're the ones who show up. I mean, they're pushing forward and they're getting the hard stuff done. It's not just a career for them, right? This is what they do every day, all day. Um, so the book has three parts. Um, and the first part, I try to really focus on sort of what is what is the social movement, why why they're being sort of overlooked and, and why it's so difficult for people to trust and fund these um, women in their organizations. Um, and then the second part of the book is really the stories. Like you said, I've lived in 15 countries, but I've worked in more than 50. Um, and in every, you know, every country was different, um, but uh, there were certain things that were the same. And these are the stories that you see in part two. And in part three, I really try to focus on why do we need everyday feminists and dig down a little bit on why they need us. And then conclude with some kind of like a checklist for different sectors on how we could do this better. 
Um, I, you know, as you said, I've worked with, you know, NGOs, I've worked at the UN with governments and foundations and, and, you know, this, this, this intention to advance gender justice and social equality around the world is something that we're trying to do um, in every country. As you know, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. Um, so this work can't just be re relegated to one part of the world. It has to really be intentional and it has to happen everywhere where we find ourselves, particularly in difficult circumstances. And so the everyday feminists um, who have befriended me, who have taught me and helped me learn and find my own power is what I talk about in the book. Um, I, I spotlight a number of women, around eight women who many of us do know some of them, like Tarana Burke and Loretta Ross, um, but some don't. I mean, like the Minister of Mines in Nigeria. Um, some don't know Maria Miranda, um, who is of the Garifuna people, uh, over in Honduras, you know, so these are people who have been um, inspirations to me and have helped me and I wanted to highlight them in this book. Um, even tell some of our uh, listeners who Loretta Ross is, even though she just won a MacArthur Genius Award. She did, and she's also, I mean, you know, for most of us um, that are close to her, she's also the mother of um, the reproductive justice movement. I mean, not just as a movement, but also as a framework. I met Loretta Ross at the um, Beijing Conference on Women 20, 28 years, years ago. <laughs> Who's counting them, right? Years ago, right? Yeah. That's right. Um, but she, had to, she was then heading an organization for, funded largely by the Ford Foundation called Sister Song. That's right. Now Monica is for reproductive system. justice from the bottom up. Absolutely. So this is not all over this the, of the American South. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and I, I tend to look at her and Dazon and others who are in that um, area in Atlanta and look at Black feminism and the work that they've done and continue to do, right? Because they're they're still at it. Um, they're still in it. And that's the thing about everyday feminists is that they don't let up. Um, and, and now being in this position at Global Fund for Women, the ability to also like sit on these boards like Oxfam and Management Sciences for Help, I feel like my job is to remind people who, you know, who these everyday feminists are and why they need resources. Um, and, and I do have a unique vantage point over the decades, um, you know, and, and, and I know the value of the everyday feminists because I've, I've spoken to them, I've, I've sat with them, um, helped set strategy on their issues and really just watched up close the, the long-term impact they're having. And so Loretta is a classic example of how it doesn't happen overnight but you know these women are working at it and and they're getting there they they're changing the game they're changing the names you know and they're really um i think what we need to be focused on if we want to see lasting change um in our community tell us a little tell us a little bit more about the global fund and how it works mm -hmm. um, how it uh figures out which grassroots organizer or group may succeed better sure. than is worthy of investment how does it choose its partners and evaluate its investments? What's its annual budget? How does it raise money? I think people would love to know a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's um, so Global Fund for Women started in 1987 with a um, few really, really um, simple thoughts in mind with three women, um, including, of course, as you know, Anne and Francis. And we're about to okay, celebrate. Anne and Francis, tell, I know, you know, tell, tell our listeners. So Anne Firth Murray, um, and Francis, what's Francis' last name? Do you remember? I'd have to look it up. 
Um, but they were, um, as well as a, another, a, a couple other women who were at the table, um, including Dame Nita Burrow, who a lot of people know from the Caribbean. She was from Barbados and was uh, president in that country at the time. So um, was very, very important politically. But they came together and their ask was very simple. Can we give women money to do the work they're doing? Um, it wasn't trying to silo them into a particular set of work, whether that was violence or HIV AIDS. It was just, we trust women and we want to get them money to do this work. I mean, a classic example that many people know um, who know Global Fund for Women is Lima Gaboli, who's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, and um, she's featured- from in Liberia. The, yes, from Liberia and featured in the film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell um, that uh, Ann Disney did. Um, and, she, was and a, she, a, she was a woman who worked as many women do in uh, countries in Africa in the market. Um, that's right. And she didn't even have an organization around her, um, which made her ineligible for almost all of philanthropy and government, you know, uh, 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 funding. But she came to the Global Fund for Women and she asked for $10,000 to take some buses across the border from Liberia to Ghana so that women could sit in at the peace processes, which at the time didn't include any women at the table, but they took the liberty to take those buses, some food, of course, and they um, took uh, hundreds of women who stood and wouldn't let those men out of that building until the peace accord in Liberia was signed. And um, it's a, it's just a, you know, after that though, she built an organization around her and she's still doing amazing things. She has her own foundation. Um, but it was that kind of thing that the founders at Global Fund for Women were interested. Now, but jump the forward. presence of women made a difference in the ultimate resolution. Absolutely. If you remember, she she went through three civil war civil wars in her lifetime before she actually determined she just had to do something. And she talks about this story because she didn't have a formal organization around her. Um, she could not get funding from anywhere else. And that is the premise of Global Fund for Women. What I uh, would like to add to what you just said about uh, Lema Gaboi is that the significance of what she did did not stay limited to Liberia, although it had a profound influence on the outcome of the peace process in Liberia, but also it uh, served as an example for global policy um, to change. And the UN, through something called Resolution One. Uh, 1325 of the UN Security Council now mandates the participation of women in peace processes. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, you know, and, and Global Fund for Women, um, you know, has been seeding these kind of everyday feminists. And, you know, sometimes we get criticism, right? They're saying, oh, you know, if you're only focused on feminist orgs, you're only focused on um, women and women's efforts. And, and it's like, so not true, because um, what Lima Gaboli was doing was not just for women. I mean, she leveraged women and everyday market women to to work on these issues. But what she was trying to, what she was looking for, um, was you know completely for everybody. It's for the entire society. And you'll find that most of the women that I talk about in the book, um, it is not just women's issues. It's more than that. It is a society that we all want. Um, a future that we all want. And that's why I say it's so important for us to continue to lift them up and to stop undervaluing what, what they can do. Well, and that the key to 
poverty eradication um, and you know the growth of uh, economic growth of countries cannot come top down as it did uh, as was the view of so many uh, investors in development in Africa for so many years. You know, if you build the idea was World Bank would go in and build infrastructure thinking that that somehow would help eradicate poverty. But what it did is it made a few people very wealthy and did not address the fundamental issues in the society and certainly did not uh, address poverty because so many of the uh, women in, who do the major work in agriculture and in a trade in Africa uh, were not the beneficiaries of any of this investment. And that I think is what's changed or is changing. Um, and there's so much better understanding today of, of what inclusive development really means. Inclusive development means getting resources uh, to women as well as men, color, to tons of considerations of intersectionality to uh, have to be part of the funding process um, if you are going to uh, bring about meaningful uh, Absolutely. and change. Um, let's talk about the current campaign that your book engages with um, of the Global Fund. Uh, it's called the 1.9 campaign. Mm -hmm. Let's tell our listeners what that means and what you're trying to accomplish here. Absolutely. Thanks, um, Ellen. And so in the book, actually, we talk about this, the amount of funding that gets to grassroots women's organizations. And we talk about it as a part of the overall OECD numbers that come out each year. So when this book was written, the um, overall number of money that got to uh, particularly Global South countries from the Global North um, that amount of money for grassroots women's group was about 1.6%. So since the book, another round of, of research and data has come out and it's 1.9. So Global Fund for Women um, has a campaign going called 1.9 and Rising. And our goal is to get people, one, to understand that that number, because sometimes people hear it and it just sounds so drastically low, they're like, it can't be true. But it is. And we've been tracking this number over time. And I got to say, Ellen, um, the the overall number of, of um, actual money that's going towards gender equality is falling. Um, so it's not increasing as it had been for years. And so when you talk about this number, this 1% or one9 that is what's the percentage of gender equality money that's actually getting to community-based organizations run by women. And so it is extremely low and we've got to get that number up. So our goal is to talk about this number with the broader public. Um, and we even wanna do some work on the Hill with that, but then also trying to um, get that number up, You know, increase the level of funding that gets to um, grassroots women. I mean, it's already such a small pool, right? You know. Um, and, and we, it's just, you know, we need to sort of um, think hard about how we resource um, what actually works. Again, I think, um, where do you think the money goes and why is it being spent wrong? I mean, so much development assistance from yeah. the North uh, or, and the West, or the West, however you want to uh, uh, identify it ge geographically, winds up going to, you know, organizations based here rather than based in the countries. Um, oh, absolutely. And it's not unique to the U.S. To yeah, it's not unique to the U.S. at all. 
I would say, and Carnegie did some work on this. Um, the uh, corporation, the foundation. Yeah, the foundation, I'm sorry, yes. Um, and they looked at uh, what percentage of, and in most countries in the global north that um, have foreign assistance dollars that go into global south countries, uh, I think the number was around 70, close to 70% of it stays in the country with, uh, you know, like organizations like the Beltway Bandits, we call it, you know, so those organizations like the Chemonics, um, even Management Sciences um, for Health is one. Um, so they have these large contracts where technical assistance is brought in the country um, where the money is coming from. And then that's how it goes out. Uh, in, in the UK, it's like Minnie and Daniels, you know, so these are for-profit and Again, for companies. When, I mean, in the, in the era before the internet, before uh, good communications, it was necessary to, uh, in theory, to protect the funds um, and also diverted by often, you know, problems of corruption in developing world countries, that sort of thing. I mean, I don't think people were malevolent completely. They may have been misguided, but they weren't malevolent. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um not at all and and there is, is still a place ellen for this kind of support to countries um this kind of support like for health systems in a particular country in rwanda there is still a place for that what we're saying though is the changing narrative is social change issues have to start in the countries that's where movements start they start where the where the injustice is. And there has to be more support that goes to these organizations that are developing a, what is quite frankly movements on their own in these countries, but without the ability to actually um, get any kind of resources. And we, we have to think about too, um, this aligned with a lot of countries are starting to close their civil space. So that means women's organizations that have been doing this work for if not, you know, centuries, decades at least, um, are now suffering from, you know, sort of the bureaucracy of closing civil spaces and, and democracy shrinking um, for them in their countries. It's all countries becoming more autocratic and, yeah, and less supportive exactly. of civil society, right? Yeah. So I, exactly. I not only emphasize what's going wrong, though, I, I feel as though uh, sometimes we tend, because the problems are so overwhelming, uh, to to focus on the problem and not on some solutions. I was uh, lucky enough to uh, be at the Council on Foreign Relations recently, um, where Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, uh, in response to a question from the audience, spoke of Canada's new feminist foreign assistance policies. Mm -hmm. Did um, 
to uh, not just 1.9%, but to making sure that 15% of uh, Canada's bilateral um, international development assistance across all sections and categories um, would go to advancing gender equality. And in other words, that meant health, uh, economic development, uh, democracy building or, or political participation. Um, and he he committed, he says the country is committed, um, $150 million over five years to grants to support local women's organizations in um, recipient countries. This is, you know, not something Canada invented, this idea of a feminist foreign policy or a feminist development assistance program actually started in um, Scandinavia and in, in, in Sweden. Uh, changes in governments there, as you were saying earlier, yeah. are uh, threatening some of the tradition that has been built to, to do this kind of assistance because more conservative governments uh, are in, in some instances uh, standing back, you know, and and uh, and 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 changing, um, demanding changes in these laws. Um, but can you say anything about Canada um, and uh, any other countries uh, or any of the yeah, absolutely. I mean, that yeah, yes, the possibility of real change. Well, and there's, you know, like you said, there's a number of countries that, um, you know, some of them calling themselves um, having a feminist foreign policy. And what Canada did was actually quite unique. Um, and many people don't know that that feminist foreign policy and the ultimate policy that came out of that around foreign assistance was very much an advo advocacy work that Global Fund for Women did along with MATCH, which was the women's fund that was based in um, in Canada. And that uh, MATCH is now a part of what is a partnership between the women's fund and the government of Canada, and it's called the Equality Fund. And not only does, did he did they invest 150 from the Canadian government itself, but other um, donors also put money into that pot. So it, it you know at uh, a total of 300 million dollars is put into an investment that's specifically looking at either women-owned businesses or uh, businesses that have um, a significant you know significant interest in women. Um, advancement and have women on their board. So it is a private sector equity fund that then uh, the, the women's fund can use the proceeds from that in order to give grants. And so it's, it's, it's actually built a lifetime. It's not, uh, the government hasn't just said this year, we're going to give you this much, you know, they said for the foreseeable future, we want to make sure that women and other countries have access to funding that will allow them to do the work that they do. And this is new, Ellen. This is, um, you know, so we're talking about a feminist foreign policy that is brave, um, that has really gone beyond what almost any country have, has done, including the Scandinavian countries. Now, we do have a partnership with Sweden, and that's where you're talking about, you know, more conservative government has come in now and said that they're no longer a feminist um, foreign policy country. But we still do have a really good relationship with them. And, you know, and, and as you know, um, leaders can't break up everything um, that has yeah. been happening and the move towards supporting uh, gender equality at a much higher rate um, has has really already been, I think, you know, um, embedded into the, the hearts and minds of the people. And that that's country. very heartening yeah. to hear. Yeah. Um, yes. But it, it does suggest to our listeners how important 
leadership is in the developed world as well, yes. uh, as we need to make, make sure that we continue to elect progressive representation here uh, committed to these issues. Uh, although, interestingly, I mean, I, I'm always trying to be optimistic as possible uh, at my advanced age now, having done this work almost half a century. Um, one of the, the best examples of a good uh, foreign assistance program that does actually invest in women uh, in the United States and does in, invest bilaterally and doesn't deals directly with recipient countries is PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, which was actually started in the Bush years, uh, G.W. Bush, um, yes. and had an extraordinary uh, legacy and is now a model, I think, for um, other foreign assistance programs. Again, the, the Center for Global Development recently had Samantha Power, the new head of USAID, on an interview, which I listened to online. And that too gave me a little bit of hope because uh, Samantha, representing Biden administration, obviously, is quite committed to uh, changing the way uh, American foreign assistance is uh, dispersed uh, to doing much more bilaterally, directly with organizations in countries, building public sector capacity in countries, as well as civil capacity in countries uh, among groups like women's groups. But we need to uh, pin USAID down much more than we've done in the past um, to make sure that- Yeah, I think that's right. And I would say, because, you know, I lived in the belly of the beast during these days, uh, for lack of a better term, and I, you know, was responsible for implementation of the PEPFAR program. And I think the intention um, was absolutely um, very well documented and the impact, right, of it was well documented. I do think that some of the things that we have to remember, as you, as you mentioned earlier, is the intersectionality of these issues. Uh, PEPFAR was very siloed. So in, in the countries where I served and worked, um, you would have a, a, a sort of growing and developing public health system of which then PEPFAR sort of would only um, exist in parallel. Uh, we were, you know, that they were not allowed to uh, use, um, for instance, they couldn't mix it with reproductive health, which as we know, I mean, STDs and, and, and you know, women's health and reproductive health are all, you know, connected. And so to not have that connection in the health systems, um, it really did mean that the program sort of existed on its own. And it didn't respond to the intersectionality of women um, who were living very, very multiple sort of affected uh, lives. And, and for them to have to go to one clinic, let's just say our hospital for a certain type of care, and then to another one for HIV. And so I think what we're learning, though, and what we're seeing, Ellen, is that People understand that, that we can't go in and just build projects that are isolated um, from the lives of the people that they're trying to impact. And that very much so, and I, I've seen this at uh, Management Sciences for Health, of course, the understanding that it has to be an intersectional approach, the understanding that you have to work with what's already on the ground and not to build new structures and programs that are outside of the the programs that are in the country. So I, I do believe we have learned a lot over the last couple of decades and we're moving in the right 
direction. But I do um, also work with, um, you know, USAID, you know, I retired from there. So I understand the the bureaucracy um, that goes in trying to do uh, direct grants to local organizations. And I think they're trying to balance the uh, extensive bureaucracy that's used to working with organizations that are very large, uh, multi-million dollars with this, you know, juxtaposing it with these very small grants that goes to communities. So I don't want us to pretend that, you know, the the sort of uh, framework of a bilateral, you know, having a relationship with a very um, local organization, nor do I want us to pretend that that might not be dangerous for the organization who's doing some of this work, particularly around racial justice, um, gender justice, um, immigration justice. So all of these issues that are, um, you know, plaguing a lot of us um, have to have a very different approach, have to have a unique approach. These groups can't be expected to deliver the type of even just something simple as reporting that is required from most USA um, grantees. So if yeah. we're going to do more, we have to also remember the 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 sort of um, strengths of these organizations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I mean, what I've always admired about you, Latanya, is that because you were a practitioner in the field of both working for the UN at UNICEF and for a USAID, you're not. A, I mean, you you don't. You certainly remain an idealist, but you aren't impractical. I mean, you understand how difficult it is to make uh, and implement these programs in a way um, that makes them effective and also protects the investments. Um, but I think you more than anyone, uh, are, are, your perspective is important because you have such a broad vision of, of how to deliver aid effectively. And you understand that the payoff from aid that reaches women civil society just tends to be greater. Uh, you know, there's less waste, there's more impact on communities. You know, the famous saying, um, you know, give a woman, she'll feed her family, uh, yes. prove her community, uh, secure her country and change the world. And I, I think, uh, you know, one doesn't have to be essentialist. This isn't not a biological thing, um, but the social structure of countries is built around women's work and it, not only in a family, but also in the both formal economy more and more and in the informal sector in so many of these countries. And so uh, empowering women, uh, giving them reproductive health care, uh, protection against violence, political representation, uh, you know, more secure uh, legal provisions um, just just pays off in very, very big ways. Absolutely. So and I mean, I think, go ahead. Yeah, and I was just going to say, and I think that there has been a growing body of data and evidence that proves exactly what you were just saying around this logic model. But where we are politically in the world can um, sometimes make you think that um, we we're still struggling, you know, or swimming upstream to actually uh, implement um, what we know to be fact. And so that is um, what I think for me, the book 
and, and Global Fund for Women in partnership are trying to sort of make this case and tell stories to help people. So help people like staffers on the Hill understand why is it important to have feminist funding? Why is it important for feminist movements to succeed? Um, and so, you know, this case, we wanna make this strong case so that even those that are sort of somewhat on the fence, they know that gender equality is the right thing to do, but not so convinced to put more um, uh, funding and other resources in it. We're hoping that this can help tell the story and show that, you know, women's funds have been doing this for decades now, and we have seen the impact, whether it's around ending civil wars like Lima or getting female presidents elected and securing laws that give new protections to millions of people. It is documented. It is working. We just have to now invest more in getting those outcomes. And also really enforce the interdependence of, of human rights um, yes. and development programs. You, you know, you can't have development without rights. You can't have rights without development. That's kind of the fundamental yes. of the United Nations. Um, but it was never, it was sort of... Uh, aspirational, uh, it's now becoming a little bit more, to be more uh, important. Let me just use the little bit of time we have left. Um, since a lot of students listen to these broadcasts on younger people beginning their careers, um, mm -hmm. to, talk, to ask you to talk a little bit about your own life journey, um, which is so compelling. Um, can you in specific detail tell us a little bit more about how you got into this work? What's, what was your educational background? You know. How did you get to uh, Africa? How did you get to all, <laughs> all these things? Uh, tell us a yeah, little. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, my share. parents, my parents will say that I knew I was going to be a lawyer from the time I was five. And look, you know, growing up as a inner city black girl in Philadelphia, um, you know, sort of lower middle class, you know, but still considered myself and, an, you know, incredibly privileged. Um, you you see injustice, right? You live it. You live it every day. My my brother was in and out of um, the juvenile justice systems. I, you know, my in my home, there was abuse of my mother. Um, and so later in college, it just, you know, the first thing I remember marching literally that first semester was around apartheid and getting University of Maryland to divest. And so that's, so you just start breathing, you know, this, this um, work to, to seek equality um, in your settings. And I, I wasn't in, so I knew I was going to law school um, and I, I got into a program that actually um, helped me see, uh, it was in uh, Kenya. It was in Ni the, the law faculty at University of Nairobi with Widener Law School together had a program um, on what they call international public law. And it was a certification program that really just taught you about all the systems that you were talking about, um, our international um multilateral structures and how you can use them as a lawyer to make change and and very heavy on the human rights side. And that's what got me into, I went into Peace Corps. Um, I started working with the UN as a human rights officer and more specifically with child protection and um, gender equality uh, when I was at UNICEF. And that kind of got me, you know, started on the road that I eventually took um, which more and more, and, and you know, some of the stories in the book talk about, you know, each experience kind of helps you learn um, what was important and how you go about this uh, work that we call development. And so I did it with the when when I was with UNICEF, um, I decided to move to the the Foreign Service uh, because um, there were, um, you know, I, I kind of felt like I needed to be on the home team. I know that kind of sounds crazy, but. 
It's like I was doing it all over the world, but understanding that the U.S. has a particular place um, of power and privilege and funding. We talk about this with the global gag rule. Um, we we know that what the U.S. does affects other countries in a in a huge way. And so I thought my perch would be um, the Foreign Service, and I did that. Um, but then it was when I met Cecile Richards, who, who many of you know from um, Planned Parenthood, and she talked to me about their international program. I applied immediately. Um, it was that passion. It was that same passion that led me to know that um, really focusing on an issue um, that I didn't have to be agnostic about, right? I could I could have a side, you know, with the U.S. government. Of course, in the Foreign Service, it's really hard to have a side. You know, you have to you have to go with the political swings of the day. And so that that experience with Planned Parenthood was so profound because it was, I could actually advocate for the side I wanted to be on and the side that but I thought was right. Are you, are you telling our <laughs> listeners that not all, I don't know if you've watched it yet, but it's absolutely preposterous, but absolutely totally wonderful. This new Netflix series called The Diplomat, uh, where needless to say, uh, the career foreign service officer takes sides in a way that is rare, rarely happens, but uh, rarely. Yes, that's right. And you, I, mean, I mean, it's there, of course, we have incredible, you know, foreign service um, officers who now more and more are becoming ambassadors, like in the show, you know, career ambassadors right. used to be rare. But I think since the Obama times, they've become again, I know you're looking at what Biden has done, it has been pretty incredible, the number of um, career um, ambassadors that are particularly in, in yeah. the developing world and important, important. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. More and more, our our career foreign service is akin to Europe's and other parts of the world where people who really, really are specialists are are, are in charge of these missions. And um, it's 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 really important, I think. Um, I we're think so. out of time, but I, I, I don't want to end without asking you um, to sort of Tell us, you know, after this long and brilliant career uh, in so many different important institutions and countries, you know, what what causes you the most despair? What gives you hope for the future? Um, you know, I, I like to say that way back in the 90s, uh, the Cold War had ended. The United Nations was addressing uh, human rights and development in a much larger and I think um, more hopeful national security framework or, or global security framework. Um, but in the years since regional wars, refugee flows, a climate crisis, HIV AIDS, uh, now um, more even more recently, um, you know, a global epidemic, uh, diverted resources uh, we never thought way back in the 90s. Um, we just didn't see any of the, those on the horizon. So. Mm. So many of the hopes and aspirations we had and were, were shaped by Beijing, where you and I both were lucky to be, um, although I didn't meet you there, um, mm -hmm. have sort of been torn asunder by these many, many, many global demands um, on resources. Uh, what gives you hope? What what gives you what well, cost? So, Ellen, I'm just convinced that you know, social change is possible. And I think you got to start there, right? And I think with the possibility of social change, 
um, which brings with it, you know, the economic and political change, of course. Um, there is this um, possibility for accountability. There's this possibility for change for better in our societies. And I think I would just end by saying, you know, and I wrote this in the book that a major les lesson for me and listening to and working with everyday feminists in action is that we have to get out of the way of young feminist leaders. I am, I am so stunned. And now I have my, my daughter, my second child is going off to college now and and I am, you know, in awe, particularly of adolescent girls or how they're driving today's social justice movements. I know we tend to focus on how, how much they're on their phones and, you know, all these things that they care about that maybe don't seem important to us, but their, their intentions to build a more just and equitable world for everyone gives me hope. And, and in recognition of this and in line with the commitment to intergenerational feminism, we must just lift and support their work in real terms. So I'm excited about that. And I, I think we can, I think we can do more than just put them on a stage and, and you know, have them do our social media feeds. I, I think we should give them the startup resources um, to, to fly on their own. To really invest in youth as well as in women, but yeah. and girls. Yes, I, yes. I, I couldn't agree more. I think they've come of age in a different set of circumstances, you know, yeah. the end of the Cold War and um, their perspectives are most important. So I guess we have to end because time is out. Um, I want to thank <laughs> yes. you for today's episode. Um, Latanya, uh, pleasure to spend time with you and uh, to hear your many insights about the role of women in sustainable development and in um, making democracies work. Um, I hope our audience enjoyed the conversation and will look for your new book, The Everyday Feminist. Um, please remember to rate and subs to subscribe to and even rate International Horizons on Spotify, Apple Podcast. Um, my thanks to Oswaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, um, as well as to uh, Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. Um, my name is Ellen Chesler, and I want to thank all of you for joining us. Um, and I hope and we look forward to having you uh, with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.